I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be considering verses 14 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21. Now, last week, we talked about our identity as God's monument to his triumph in Christ. That was part of Paul's purposeful digression before he began to pray. Now, the question that arises, at least in my mind, is how do we become that kind of church? that faithfully demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel. Or, maybe to put it another way, what will enable us to embody the humility and weakness as a counter-cultural community proclaiming the triumph of God in Christ? How do we resist our natural instincts to assert ourselves and our rights and privileges and seize power. Well, Paul resumes his train of thought, and having described how his imprisonment and suffering serves God's subversive declaration of Jesus' triumph, he shows us how it happens. And he shows it by praying. He prays that God's Spirit would strengthen us to become more mature, because to be filled with all the fullness of God is to be like Christ in every way. So let's read the text. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Let me just find the page. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all than we can ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul's prayer it's not a set of how-to instructions, neither is it simply a set of propositions. Rather, Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would empower us to experience Christ's transforming presence and be grounded in the love of Christ as we grasp more fully its infinite dimensions. How does that connect with transformation? Well, underlying Paul's prayer is the reality 
that at the core of our problem is our disordered loves. Because of sin, we love the wrong things, and when we do love the right things, we love them in the wrong proportion. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 10, we were reminded that before we came to faith, we were followers of Satan, living in the passions and desires of our sinful hearts, living under the influence of a world in revolt against God. We recognize that salvation means that God has given us new hearts. But we still live in the already, not yet. We're saved, we're still being saved from the presence and power of sin. Our desires still need to be changed. And so James K.A. Smith rightly says, if we could show that quote, if you are what you love, and love is a habit, then discipleship is a rehabituation of your loves. This means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. The learning that is fundamental to Christian formation is affective and erotic. And please, erotic in the sense of desire-focused. That's the way James K.A. Smith is using that word. Okay, please. It is a matter of aiming our loves or orienting our desires to God and what God desires for his creation. See, knowledge is essential. Knowing truth is important, but it is inadequate. I think all of us know that. We know what is right, but when push comes to shove, we struggle to do it. Because it is more than just knowing what's right. We need something more. We need truth to produce what Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of new affections. Because ultimately, we do what we want to do. And affections here refers to just more, more than just feelings. They speak of our most fundamental desire. And this is why Paul prays the way he does. Only a deepening grasp of Christ's incomprehensible love can properly reshape our disordered loves. And that's why we sang, my Jesus, I love thee. It is the proper response of the people of God to the love of God. And frankly, that proper response, that transformative understanding is beyond our capability. And that's why Paul has to pray that the Spirit would empower us. He prays, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being. It is only by the power of the Spirit that we will grasp, and more importantly, be gripped by the love of God. 
And Paul uses two parallel phrases here in verse 16 and 17 of being strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. These are two ways of describing the same dynamic. The spirit empowers us to grasp Christ's love by Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. In other words, our desires are transformed as Jesus settles in and asserts his rule over our entire person until he is at the center of our lives. And that phrase, Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, reminds us of perhaps renovating our homes. If you could show those two pictures, please, Dennis. Our, our best man and maid of honor, this is a, a before and after picture our best man and maid of honor bought a house in Michigan that had been abandoned for 15 years. So you can imagine it was dilapidated. It had no heat or running water, and snakes lived in the basement. Um, that, that, that critter there, um, that was our maid of honor's wicked sense of humor. She was trying to scare somebody. <laughs> Not that it was necessary, because it... I, I wouldn't even go into the basement, frankly, when we visited. But they patiently renovated it into a comfortable home from which they now extend hospitality. That's the kitchen where we enjoyed many a meal. The house, which had been dilapidated, now fulfills the purpose for which it had been built. And friends, that's the same thing that Christ is doing with our lives. He's moved in. He dwells in our hearts through faith. He's cleaning out the snakes and mold of our sinful desires. And he's repairing the damage that sin has wrought. And a, a lot of us are uncomfortable with that. We, we fear being known because we're afraid if people know the truth behind my facade, they might not like me anymore. Here's the wonderful thing about Jesus. He loves us so much. He's not going to leave. No matter what filth he finds or how slow we are to learn. He knew that in the first place before he moved in. In fact, that's why he moved in. He's going to change us and make us like him. And it's a slow process. I remember when I had my in-person interview with the search committee, uh, Rick took me into this auditorium. And he told me that the walls in this place are so hard, the contractor doing the renovation went through so many drill bits. But the walls were no match for their persistence and determination. And so now you look around, we have a wonderful auditorium. Now, I'm sure we all have ideas for how we would improve it. I think we would all agree, though, that the best way to improve this building is to have more people in it. And to have those people 
joining heart and hands, worshiping God and loving one another. And that's why the Lord allows us to endure hardship and struggle. He is growing us by exposing our disordered loves through the struggles. And in the same breath, as our hearts are exposed and we run to him in repentance, and he demonstrates his forgiving love to us, He's changing our desires so that we can desire God's intentions for us and become what God wants us to be. He is making himself at home in our church to make us a dwelling place that is fit for him. It's going to cost more than the cost of the renovation And it's going to be even more painful. But it is worth it. And it requires that we submit to his work by faith. And I suppose that's where the challenge lies. Because deep within, we would rather make our hearts a hotel for Jesus than his home. He's welcome for a couple of days. But like any house guest, you know, we say that house guests are are like fish. After three or four days, they start to smell. And... <laughs> but, and we treat Jesus that way, don't we? When he starts to get into the, the, the secret, hidden areas of our lives, we kind of push him out. Klein Snodgrass notes, the spirit lives with us, and this life is a growth process. We are finite, limited, and prone to failure. The real problem is that we do not care enough. We do not have the necessary discontent within ourselves that we lead to change. We like the privileges without the bother. But nothing in life happens this way. See, yes, the Spirit is at work. Christ is breaking down our walls, but we are responsible to submit to his work. And that's why the Spirit orients us to the infinite love of God. It is not a coercive process that God is bringing into our lives. He is showing us the love of God because that's the only love that will transform our distorted loves, as verse 17 points out. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the breadth and length and height and depth. As Tim Keller points out, the Spirit's task is to unfold the meaning of Christ's person and work to believers in such a way that the glory of it, its infinite importance and beauty, is brought home to the mind and heart. It's alongside the prayer in chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, of Christ illumining our hearts or the Spirit opening the eyes of our heart, renewing our imagination so that we'd understand more fully Christ's love. And Paul moves on from the image of renovation to now the image of, uh, that, that comes from two mixed metaphors, uh, from mixing of two metaphors. 
of being rooted and grounded. There's a gardening metaphor and a building metaphor. Rooted is gardening. Um, grounded is building. And the point of the image is that we draw our sustenance from the love of Christ and develop in strength and stability from that same love. See, it is the knowledge that Jesus loves us that gives us the courage to follow his countercultural example of self-giving. The fact that Christ loves us more than we could ever imagine enables us to give ourselves freely because we know the sovereign God has our back. And let's face it, we desperately need the Spirit's work because all too often our understanding of Christ's love stays on an intellectual level. I think God loves me, but the messiness of life sometimes makes us feel that God has abandoned us, doesn't it? And to make matters worse, we live in a world that denies God's love for us and that tempts us to live as if we are on our own. Daily, we get the message, it's up to you. It's your life. You live it on your terms. And the caveat to that is, if you're going to live it on your terms, you're going to have to live it on your own resources because there's nobody else out there for you. You're on your own. But the biggest problem, I think, is that we ourselves unconsciously resist God's love. D.A. Carson observes in his um, Praying with Paul, part of our deep me-ism, he's D.A. Carson, he can make up his own words, <laughs> is manifested in such independence that we do not really want to get so close to God that we feel dependent upon him, swamped by his love. Just as in a marriage, a spouse may flee relationships that are too intimate, judging them to be a kind of invasion of privacy, when in reality such a reaction is a sign of intense immaturity and selfishness. So also in the spiritual arena, when we are drawn a little closer to the living God, Many of us want to back off and stake out our own turf. We want to experience power so that we can be in control. Paul prays for power so that we will be controlled by God himself. Our deep and pathetic self-centeredness is precisely why it takes the power of God to transform us if we are to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and grow to the maturity that the scriptures hold out before us. And I must confess, that quote of D.A. Carson sort of described my life when I was working in the Philippines. I was doing all sorts of things in the church, but it was my way of telling God, God, I love you, but only so much. And I want you to leave me alone. I'm doing all these things already so that you will... Let me run my career my way, my terms. 
That doesn't work that way. Thankfully, God did not give up on me, and thankfully, God will not give up on us. He pursues us even when we run away, and His Spirit enables us to know the infinite dimensions of Christ's love. It's a bit paradoxical what Paul is saying. But when he talks about the breadth, length, height, and depth, he's trying to convey a sense of the immensity of Christ's love. And then he moves on. This love is so immense that it surpasses knowledge. And yet he says, I want you to know that same love. How does that happen? How do you know the unknowable? Well, imagine it this way. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Mariana Trench. It is located about 200 miles from Guam, and it is supposed to be the deepest part of the ocean. It is so deep that you can drop Mount Everest, all 29,000 feet of it, plus change. You can drop Mount Everest into it, and you, can, and you would have a kilometer of water over it. That's how deep the Mariana Trench is. You and I cannot get to the bottom of it. The pressure would crush us. However, we can still swim in the trench, right? In the same way, the love of Christ is beyond our full capacity to understand, but we can know it truly, though not exhaustively. And in fact, that's the wonder of eternity, isn't it? We will be with God forever. And forever, we will be plumbing the depths of Christ's love, knowing that we're not going to get to the bottom of it. Because the, the knowledge of Christ's love isn't simply an intellectual commodity that is gained by academic study. The knowledge that Paul talks about here is an experiential understanding of the reality of God's love for us that grips us so much that it changes us. As Paul would pray, uh, would put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Um, let, let's turn there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. That's one of my favorite passages, actually. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, that's how love changes us. It constrains us. It grabs us so that we cannot but live for this wonderful God 
who saved us. And the Spirit reorients and transforms us by pointing us to the cross. We can talk all we want about God's love, but love is a verb. It is demonstrated on the cross. We live in a world where we often feel abandoned. Well, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. As John would say, in this is love. That's the scripture reading this morning. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God because we hated God. We were rebels against God. And we didn't care whether God existed or not, frankly. In fact, many of us would rather that there not be a God because then we wouldn't be able to control our lives. Nonetheless, this same God who knows our hearts, who knows our rebellion, who knows our disdain, who knows our unwillingness to come under his control, willingly sent his son. And the son, the second person of the triune God, willingly left the throne of glory to become a fully human being subject to the weaknesses you and I have except for sin. Living in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that he may establish a righteousness that would be credited to us. He laid down his life for us suffering shame and scorn, enduring physical pain beyond belief. But beyond that physical pain, beyond the emotional torture of human beings whom he created, mocking him, was the pain of being the object of his beloved father's wrath. He who hated sin with all the passion of his holy being, became sin for us. And having become sin for us, bore his father's wrath. The son had lived with the father with a love that was more than love for all eternity. Now, on the cross, became the object of his beloved Father's wrath so that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know the breadth, length, depth, and height of Christ's love. Look to the cross. That demonstrates the passion and commitment of God to us. It is inconceivable 
and yet by the work of the Spirit who illumines our imaginations, we can more and more grasp and be gripped by that same love. But Paul has something else to say. He says that we grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. On one hand, he's giving all of us reassurance. Understanding Christ's love isn't special knowledge for the elite. It's not just for geniuses. It's not just for the Pauls. It's also for the us. (laughs) For the saints. For the people of God. You might say it's common knowledge for the church. But it's also to say that we understand love best as a community, as a family, as the people of God. In the words of John Stott, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. So let's explore that bit with an example. We can only understand God's love with and through others. We understand the patience and endurance that love entails more fully as we experience being forgiven by others, don't we? Especially in church. We gain a deeper appreciation of the sacrificial cost of forgiveness when we ourselves extend forgiveness to people who have hurt us in church, have said hurtful things. And we decide to say, I forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. That's how we understand love. And as we struggle to love unlovely people. I haven't met them yet here at Crestwick, but I'm sure there are unlovely people. I'm one of them. (laughs) We catch a glimpse of how undeserving we ourselves are of the love of Christ. And as we catch a fuller, practical, practicing glimpse of Christ's love embodied in the body of believers, we begin to treasure Christ more as we learn to understand this incomprehensible love of Christ. That same love that we ourselves experience in forgiveness from God and from others transforms our loves and desires. Joel is teaching uh, the kids, so I can say this. Um, when Joel and I were dating, she didn't like coffee. She was, she was not a coffee drinker. But as she spent time with me, I like coffee. She began to take a sip of my coffee. And then, eventually, she goes from sips to half a cup. And she went from half a cup to a full cup. Then when she started bringing me coffee, that's when I knew, okay, now I can propose to her. (laughs) Um, What's the point? Her taste for coffee 
arose out of relationship with me, right? In the same way, I learned to appreciate pate. When I first looked at pate, I'm like, that looks gross. Are you really going to spoil bread by putting that stuff on it? It doesn't even smell good. Now I'm the one who buys pate. <laughs> what happened? Well, again, it changed in relationship. Loving her taught me to love that stuff, and loving me taught her to love coffee. Now she drinks more coffee than I do. What is going on? Being in relationship and loving the person transformed my tastes and desires. And it's the same thing that Christ is doing in relationship with one another and with him. His indwelling presence changes our desires so that we desire what he desires. And as our desires change, we are transformed and changed into the people God intends us to be. That's why Paul prays that the Spirit would strengthen us to know Christ's presence that renovates us and to know his love that is poured out on us. That's what the Spirit is doing right now. He grows us into maturity as we learn Christ's love by the study of his word, by our intimate fellowship with one another. We learn Christ's love ourselves as we respond biblically to situations we face every day, especially relational challenges. But there's something else that Paul has been doing throughout Ephesians that I want to bring out right now. Paul has also been demonstrating how the Spirit uses worship to drive home to our hearts the reality of God's love. You see, Paul in Ephesians isn't just writing about spiritual formation. Friends, Ephesians itself is formation. Because throughout Ephesians, Paul has been rewriting the story of our lives in light of God's story. And as he shows us the grandeur of God's purposes, the wonder of Christ's redemptive work, and the beauty of God's goodness towards us, Paul has been leading us in worship. He's inviting us throughout Ephesians to join him in praising God for all the spiritual benefits we have received in Christ. He means for us to pray with him that we'd understand how much God values us and grasp the greatness of God's power at work within us. Paul, in writing these prayers, is inviting us to pray with him that the Spirit would renovate our hearts and empower us to grasp the immeasurable depths of Christ's love for us. He's inviting us to adore God for his mind-boggling ability. What am I trying to say? Friends, worship is formative. In fact, as Greg Beale points out in, his tit in the title of one of his books, you become like what you worship. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory, from one degree of glory to another. Practically speaking, that's why we need to gather together. 
You know, I'm grateful for the live stream that allows those who are shut in to engage and those who are uncomfortable with being in person to um, stay connected. But I think all of us would agree that the live stream is a very impoverished mode of engagement. We are embodied creatures who need physical presence. And we worship in spirit and truth most fully as embodied beings in community. Last week, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. That was why Jesus gave us this tangible, physical means of grace. As a community, we acknowledge our need of Christ as we confess our sins together. And as we partake by faith, the Spirit uses the physical symbols of bread and juice to reinforce the reality that the body of Jesus was broken for me, for us, and the blood of Christ was shed for us. And our hearts are strengthened as we remember ourselves to that reality, as we bring the past into the present. That worship is formative. And that's why Paul, in this passage, closes his prayer in doxology. He goes from challenging us to now reassuring us. How can I be sure that God will answer such an audacious prayer to know the unknowable? Well, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And you find, isn't it interesting that instead of telling us this, he tells us, he, encourage, he, he grabs us and leads us in praising God for it. To make us experience the reality that God is able to do, God's ability is far beyond our own imagination. Because he's already introduced God as the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named in verse 15. That speaks to the fact that God is the omnipotent creator. And as the omnipotent creator, he has more than enough power to answer our prayer for maturity. See, the result of knowing the love of Christ is being filled with all the fullness of God. And as we said, to be filled with all the fullness of God is to be like Jesus, to become mature. Paul is reassuring us by leading us in worship that this God will answer our prayer out of his glorious riches. The fact that God isn't just rich. He's not even filthy rich. He is gloriously rich. And this God who is gloriously rich beyond our greatest ability to describe is our Father. And I know some people don't like the image of God as Father because they've had bad fathers. 
Please understand, our Father is not like earthly fathers who are flawed and fallen. Our God is the perfect Father who, ought to be, who is the model for every father. The one that we could never, ever hope to be like. <laughs> but also the one who has graciously adopted us as sons through the sacrifice of Jesus and who has given us his spirit to dwell in us. And how can I know? How can I be sure that I will know the love of Christ? Well, guess what? The same power that is at work within us. We are told in chapter 1, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him above all things. This awesome, omnipotent God loves us beyond our wildest dreams. And he's pouring out his resurrection power in our lives. And the infinite eternal spirit is the one at work to help us understand this incomprehensible love. So we can be sure that this prayer will be answered and in fact, even now, is being answered. The spirit is shedding his love abroad in our hearts enabling us to grasp his infinite love and be gripped by it. And he does this for his glory. You notice how Paul ends? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because that's what it's about, isn't it? It's not about us. It's about the glory of God. That's why he causes us to experience more fully his infinite love so that that amazing love would shape our own loves. And as we are transformed, we are better able to give glory to the Father just as our Savior, to whom we are united through faith, gave him glory. It's happening now. And it will continue to happen as the Spirit works in us and in our midst. And forever, we will exalt him when we see him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for this reality that you love us and we must confess that our words are not enough to describe the dimensions of your love. Words are not enough to describe how you delight in us. And we must confess that our hearts struggle to grab hold of the reality that you love us. Because we look at ourselves and we have trouble loving ourselves. And certainly we know we have trouble loving other people. And yet, your word tells us that you do love us. 
and you've got more than words, you've actually demonstrated conclusively, definitively, the reality of your love for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit would orient us over and over daily to the cross of our Savior where your wrath and your mercy met and are reconciled to the cross where we, through faith, are reconciled to you. And we pray, Father, for those who are here in our midst or on the live stream who are strangers to this infinite love. Father, may they know this same love. May your spirit give life to their dead hearts so that they may put their faith in Jesus and know this magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. And may we, your people, continue to grow in our understanding of it so that we, your people, may be shaped into your image and be able to love us, you love us. And this we ask not for our sakes, but for the matchless glory and honor of your name. Amen.